Welcome to the Wildflower Half Hour. I'm Isabel Hardman and in this week's episode we'll be hearing about the beautiful endangered plant that relies on ants, learning how to cure plant blindness and getting another one of those lovely book readings from Zoe Devlin. Wildflower Hour takes place every Sunday between 8 and 9pm on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. It's entirely volunteer run by people who just want the world to know how fascinating wildflowers are. We actually have a branch in the Netherlands and are really keen to take this movement global so that wildflowers become so culturally important in every country that more is done to keep them safe. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and you're not in Britain or Ireland, please do get in touch as we would love to help you set up a wildflower hour in your own country. And if you're somehow accidentally listening to this podcast and wondering why we bother on banging on about plants, you're not alone. Plant blindness is a phenomenon whereby even people who find nature interesting are able to completely overlook the greenery all around them. Dr Jonathan Mitchley, better known as Dr M, at the University of Reading is fighting plant blindness by teaching the next generation of botanists. And I set him a challenge to persuade everyone that plants matter. So Jonathan, you teach people formal qualifications in botany. Tell tell me a little bit about that. Yes, sure. So my posh title is Associate Professor of Field Botany at the University of Reading. And as part of that, I direct the Masters in Plant Diversity, which incidentally has been running or in in some form or another for 49 years now. So next year is our 50th anniversary. We're already planning some celebrations for that, which I hope contributors to Wildflower Hour and and other botanists will get involved in. can talk a bit more about that perhaps later. So um, within the Masters in Plant Diversity at Reading, my main teaching is uh, about plant identification. So absolutely central, UK plants. And actually, though you referred to me as Jonathan, which is my name, so that's fine. I also go under the web persona of Dr. M., and I have a website, which is drmgoeswild.com. And I also tweet at drmgoeswild. And I'm very much involved in and, and motivated by training the next generation of botanists. Because when I studied botany, which was a long time ago now, back in the 1970s at the at Bangor University in North Wales, you could study botany. I did an honours degree in botany. Um, We studied all the aspects of botany. So we did plant physiology, genetics. We did major groups of plants. So angiosperms, gymnosperms, um, pteridophytes. We did bryophytes. Uh, We did mycology as well, though, of course, fungi are not plants. But we did mycology um, and ecology and we all kinds of things. Nowadays, school students who want to study plants, and there are some, Uh, students who want to study plants still, um, they struggle to find um, a place to go because we've kind of lost the title botany. You can find undergraduate degrees in plant science. There's, I think, about a dozen major universities in the country now where you can study plant science or you can study something that has plants in the title and in the program, but not straight botany as such. And why is that? Why is that? I think, well, you could argue. What do we argue? I've had people argue with me or suggest to me um, that it's because students are not interested. um, And therefore, if you were to start a programme, because I know there are 
I know of people who would like to to restart um, programs actually called botany. There's a bit of a discussion amongst people as as to whether botany is an old-fashioned term and we should be thinking ahead to plant science. I actually like the the botany word. I call it the best B word that we have. So you could say that there isn't a demand. Um, Equally, you could say there has been a trend, particularly since the development of molecular biological techniques for understanding plants and animals, that there's been a shift away from sort of traditional botany and zoology even towards biology. So there are lots of programs in biology. And it's very, in general terms, I think it's much more common to find programs that that look at molecular biology. So it's possible that the the molecular technologies have shifted the, the sort of interest and also, of course, the funding options which come later and obviously um, directors of undergraduate programs are looking forward to employability and, and obviously if research um, money is, is um, in, in the molecular area then programs that look at whole organism whether that's plant or animal actually are less prevalent uh, now so it's it could be demand um, that the students don't want to do it and there's a whole area we could discuss about that or it could be that it's the people developing programs at the universities who actually look and one of the things that happened at Reading actually was that the undergraduate program in botany which we did run until a few years ago didn't have a huge number of students on it and these days it's very much economics that leads the way and so a program with say a dozen students on it is not considered viable even though sometimes those programs don't need to run with many individual dedicated modules they can use modules from different programs so it's either demand um, led arguments or it could be supply it could be universities saying actually it's biology it's molecular biology where the funding is so our programs in biology are not going to be in botany maybe not in zoology though as i say the zoology program at reading is still very strong we're going to have programs in biology the issue can be looked at from the supply side or the, the demand side. What we do at Reading, of course, is, is say, OK, that's fine. We try to teach our undergraduates about plants, though we need more plant modules at Reading, as, as I think many universities do need. So what we do and what I've done since I've been here about 10 years is to focus on the master's level and say, OK, we will have students coming out at the end of our undergraduate programs across the country who will not be able to identify plants because it's not taught. So we are going to focus the master's end. We're going to take students and also mid-career people. We take a range of people on the master's and we're going to train them up in the kinds of skills that we think and we know are needed. We need people who are able to uh, identify plants in the field because conservation, agriculture, sciences like global environmental change need um, researchers who actually understand the difference between different organisms, the different being able to identify them, and also, of course, being able to understand the different role that different plant species play uh, in the ecosystem. And, of course, plant identification is just the start of that. Um, There's lots of other skills that are needed. But um, I see my... Very, I see it very much as a, from an almost evangelical point of view, as I think a number of my colleagues do, that we actually, we know, and we've had, um, well, we know from the industry, there's a, there's a professional organization that I deal with, because I actually, one of my other roles is as a, as a botanical consultant. I work with a big consultancy called RSK Group, 
So I'm actually only part-time as an associate professor at Reading. The other part of my time is spent as a botanical consultant working with developers on trying to, to limit impact on plant diversity alongside energy projects, road rail projects and so on. We know from the professional organization, which is called the Chartered Institute of Ecology and Environmental Management, as well as others, that actually there is a big skills gap. The ability to identify not just plants, actually, but also animal groups, there is a shortage. And it's almost certainly a direct result of the changes in, in, in availability of programs at university. So it's not a case that there aren't, it's not a case that there's actually just no jobs to go into or, or that the jobs are, aren't particularly well paid or, or is it actually the case that if, if you're going into botany, it's a bit of a vocation, you're not going to be sort of landing the big bucks as you're out there looking for starved wood sedge? Yes, you've got to, uh, that's a very good question and it's a tricky one because we do know that a lot of jobs in the sector if we if we take the botanical sector to be botanic gardens herbaria but also conservation organizations so in england we could be looking at natural england we could be looking at the wildlife trusts we know that the salary ranges for experts in botanical but also um, zoological and uh, ecological topics are not as high as we'd like them to be. But I would say, what are we looking at? Starting salaries, sort of 20K, 25K, and then building, depending on what you're, where you're working. But what I would say is, uh, we know from our, and, and this is something that universities need to, need to be on top of, we know from our statistics that, that our students do uh, gain employment, our undergraduate students, but also our, our postgrad students. At undergraduate level, there can be a difficulty because undergraduates studying particularly, I would say, ecological areas and actually one of the areas that we do at Reading, as well as our biology, pro biology program, is, is ecology, ecology and conservation. And that, I think, is where that's the kind of program where we, we need um, an input in, in, in botanical and plant identification and animal identification. Um, we know from those programs that our students do gain employment but what happens often is that students will go off after finishing their degree and they will do some voluntary work they may go traveling so actually the statistics which the university wants is what the students are doing in terms of employment a few months after their degree ends and very often our students are traveling the world or working in the voluntary organization so the statistics can can show perhaps more limited employability than actually is the case what we find from our master's program um, is that our students gain employment and in fact if I look over the last 10 years there aren't many students that I've taught on our master's program that, that um, haven't found uh, employment in an area which is relevant to, to, to the uh, the topic they studied and uh, one of the areas which is quite buoyant at the moment is, is the ecological consultancy area and at Reading, we have, as well as our plant diversity masters, we have a, a masters in um, what we call species identification and survey skills. Um, and that masters takes maybe 20 or so students uh, a year. And those students will have the option, and most of them take this option, to, to have a placement to, to work um, for six months with, a, with an ecological consultancy. And that is one area. It's not going to be employment area for everyone, but that's one area where identification skills, plant identification skills and survey skills, um, ecological skills are needed 
And I had a visiting speaker talk to the class earlier in the year from a local ecological consultancy. And without prompting, the students asked him, what are the things you look for, you know, new recruits? Um, and he said, one of the, well, one of the things that will always get a student and an interview is if their CV says that they have plant identification skills. Because one of the things that consultants, ecological consultants have to do is what we call phase one survey. They go out and they do a, a basic survey of a, of a site, that, you know, potential development site for housing or roads or rail or um, energy, solar farm or whatever. And they will need to identify the vegetation types, which requires a knowledge of the plant species. It's obvious when you think about it, but it was extremely encouraging for me as the person who teaches that on the master's. So it's definitely an, there are employability skills there. It's not to say that, you know, the jobs um, are super abundant and super well paid. Now, I've got just just to finish, I've got a challenge for you. I've noticed that one of your former students often tweets um, for Wildflower Hour with the hashtag plants are cool. And we've heard on this podcast from one of your current students, George Garnett, about the phenomenon of plant blindness, where people just don't notice the green stuff all around them. So if you had uh, someone who's in their sixth form or someone who's considering a career change later in life and they were saying, well, you know, why should I bother about plants? Why can't I get excited about owls or bats? You know, they're cool. They move. They're, they're interesting. How do you persuade people that plants are cool, Dr. M? <laughs> that is the ultimate challenge, isn't it? Uh, it's one we're, that we're faced with, with all the time. One way we can look at this is to see people that we know have got interested in, in, in plants, how that happened, uh, because we can look at what got different people in, in, into plants. And there's almost as many ways as there are, are people. So that's one way we can look at look at a few of those uh, journeys in a, in a moment. The other way is to say what is the value of, of getting into plants. So, so you know, how will you benefit? What will your journey be if you do take the, the botanical route? This clearly is the, is the big challenge. Uh, how do we encourage school students um, and others who are not immediately interested in plants that actually plants are cool? And I think probably I'd start by just re-emphasizing this idea of plant blindness, as, as you mentioned, this, this, this concept that as a species, Homo sapiens, tends not to notice plants in the environment, whereas we might look up into the sky and see a red kite, we might see a squirrel bounding through the through the trees because they're cuddly, because they have some kind of innate charisma. They move and they do do interesting things that are immediately uh, apparent and endearing or, or of interest. Plants, on the other hand, it's uh, much more green, green wallpaper. And um, there have been quite a few studies of of plant blindness. And I think the really important thing to say about it is that although plant blindness is probably common, uh, we we only notice, we do notice some plants. We'll notice, if we're sensible, we'll notice poisonous plants. And we may notice very showy plants. We may notice um, uh, plants because we like them or want them, or we need to avoid them because they're poisonous or they'll sting us. Although plant blindness is common, it's not, I think, inevitable. If we look globally, I think there are there are many cultures who have a, a very close association w- w- with plants. These are cultures perhaps are living close or even in forests, forest communities, 
and 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 other cultures, particularly in the tropics, I think, where uh, and and parts of Europe as well, where uh, there is still much much uh, greater contact or, or interaction between humans and plants, very obviously through um, food uh, resources, but um, through um, all the different things that plants do do for us. Um, so I don't think plant blindness is inevitable, but I do think it's common. And the, the point about getting into botany, getting in, into uh, getting an interest in plants is that you have to find the ways around plant blindness. And I think that comes from experience. It comes from looking. And very often it comes from mentors. If you look at the reasons why people get into plants, it's very often because somebody helped them into that world. And once you're in the botanical world, you don't want to leave it because it is the most amazing and, and, and fascinating, very beautiful an important world. So I think very often it's grandfather, grandmother, mother, a friend that gets um, an individual um, in, into to the plant world. So I think the importance of things like wildflower hour and the like can't really be overstated because they are ways and the, the, the herbology hunt, the junior versions, ways of getting pe people to look at plants. And once you get beyond the wallpaper and you actually look at the plants, then they speak for themselves in the way that plants speak, which is through beauty, it's through sensory aspects, the smells, um, the sights and the sounds. Plant blindness is common, but it's not inevitable. One of the problems at school is that we don't teach our young people about plants. OK, primary school, you will find very often very good teachers, nature clubs and the like. And the primary curriculum still has activities relating to identifying common plants, being able to think about classification, and so on. Once you get to secondary school, the curriculum is pretty much devoid of whole plant elements. All of the examples, the majority of examples are to do with mammals, usually human-based. Um, and so it's very easy in the years at secondary school to actually lose, if there was any interest in plants from primary school, it could be lost. So it's a question of regaining that, um, or gaining that that interest um, and I think the way that I would try and persuade that plants are cool is to say what do plants do for us and then what what do what can plants do for an individual in terms of, of a career for example and one of the things that I've done recently in some lectures that I've given on on the issue of plant blindness is to have a whole section which says here are 12 things that plants do for us. And we can use that as a kind of toolkit, a springboard into thinking, well, actually, yeah. Because, you know, we know that plants are the basis of all the terrestrial food chains on the planet. Plants are the basis of sustainability of our, our biosphere. And the 12 things that I, I go through, I'll just list very briefly now, then suggest how that, that could be used to inspire youngsters into a botanical career pathway or study pathway. So the first one is, is, is to start with the kids themselves and say, what plants do we play with as young children? And conkers are the obvious one. Plants can be great playthings. So the second thing is that we use plants for construction. So we think about an oak tree. The timbers can be used and have been used for construction of some of our most amazing buildings. I was driving past Ely Cathedral the other, other day and the late Oliver Rackham was always telling us how important the oak trees were for producing the timbers for building some of our most amazing cathedrals, churches, boats, ships, and all the rest of it. So there's, there's construction. There's then, of course, economics. We've only got to think about chocolate from the cocoa plant. 
It's a, uh, a multi-billion pound industry and it's all based on plants. Incidentally, Reading has the um, global quarantine facility for, for all the all the world's uh, cocoa so we can keep the cocoa plants disease free. Cocoa is uh, and chocolate is a really important um, economic plant because it's fairly small scale production. So it actually supports small family livelihoods um, in, in across the tropics. The fourth one is crops. The top crops, wheat, rice, um, are all plants. The staple crops are all plants. So we've got potatoes, we've got wheat, we've got rice, um, and so on. We've then got textiles. We've got fashion. So cotton, uh, really, really crucial there. It's a plant. Then we've got flowers and all the things we do. Uh, you know, Britain is the country of gardeners. So flowers are absolutely critical. We've then got culinary aspects. So the, the plant I use here is, is garlic, but um, uh, we could equally use a whole range of, of other plants. Um, and then history. Human history is centered on the written word. The written word really only took off once paper had been invented. And of course, initially it was papyrus. Um, and then more recently, we use wood fibers to, to make paper. So the whole of the history of the human species, the written down history, a few important things written in stone apart are based on plants. Then we have medicines. Even today in the 21st century of high technology, the majority of our, not the majority, but a large proportion of our over-the-counter medicines are plant-derived. The, the example I use is, is, is foxglove. Um, and then we have grass. <laughs> Those of you who know my website, Dr. M Goes Wild, know that Poaceae is actually my favorite plant family. I even have a song, um, the Poaceae song, which I won't sing now, but uh, Poaceae is a really important plant family for me, but also for, for humans. We could think of grazing, grazing lands, it's all based on grasses. We could equally think of sports, fields and lawns and so on. So that's number 10. Number 11 is actually about the importance of plants for our health and well-being. And we can think about forests. We can think about walking in the forest. And we know from medical studies that a walk in the forest is as good a tonic as anything that we could offer from the drugstore um, or the um, um, uh, general practitioner. And the, in fact, I was touring Japan recently uh, talking about plant blindness, amongst other things. Um, and the Japanese actually have a word for this phenomenon. They call it um, forest bathing. And the translation um, in Japanese is shinrin yoku actually two words, shinrin hyphen yoku, literally means forest bathing. And it's the idea that, um, you know, communing with nature actually brings huge health uh, benefits, both physical and mental health benefits. And finally, the arts. And where would be, we be without the poetry, the art and the music stimulated by plants? Think of Van Gogh's sunflowers, but you could equally think of um, a thousand other plants that have been used in, in the arts. So I would say to these um, these botanical skeptics or these these botanical uh, newcomers that, you know, those are just 12 of the many reasons or the many things that plants do for us. And you can take any one of those into a career pathway. But equally, you can, as I do myself, you can say, well, that's amazing. Those 12 um, things that plants do for us. And it's all based on the fascination, um, the beauty the wonder, uh, but equally the importance and um, significance of, of plants in our world. 
I would encourage those young people uh, and others who have not yet discovered the wonder of, of, of plants to find like-minded people and to start out on uh, a quest into the botanical world, which I think has so many rewards. Thanks, Dr. M. And you should have a look at his website, Dr. M Goes Wild, or follow him on Twitter to learn more about the wonderful plant kingdom. Someone else you absolutely must follow is Zoe Devlin, who is here to read us a section from the May entry in her lovely new book, Blooming Marvellous. There are some plants that just like to live dangerously. They put themselves in the wrong place, and there's little that can be done to help them when this happens. Take, for instance, the beautiful snowy white narrow-leaved helleborine, which a friend told me was growing on a roadside in County Galway. His excellent directions led me to several plants between the road and the edge of a deciduous wood. This was a rare species I had never seen before, with spikes of snow-white flowers that were in extremely good order. There were no blemishes or burnt spots which can sometimes ruin a photograph. These members of the orchid family only grow in a few locations around Ireland, so I knew how lucky I was. As it happened, my friend was to come along the same road the next day, and I texted him, thanking him for his clear directions. He was delighted, as he had not seen them that year, and renewing acquaintance with a rare species is always very special. The next evening, I received a text from him saying, Saw remains of flowers, lorry wheel marks, flowers flattened, dead. It was a narrow country road, and if two vehicles were to meet, at least one of them would have to go up on the verge. On the positive side, there was once a very large colony of pyramidal orchid growing on an embankment near what was known in the 1960s as the Big Tree in Lachlanstown, County Dublin. This referred to a large mature chestnut tree that stood at the centre of one of Ireland's first dual carriageways on the main road connecting Dublin with County Wicklow. The plants remained there until the early years of the new millennium when the road was upgraded with a very elaborate junction complete with flyover. However, before the roadworks took place, those orchids and large amounts of the soil beneath them were carefully lifted from the embankment and transferred to a place of safety on another part of our road network. Happily, this type of support for our biodiversity is now becoming more commonplace. Recently, due to the construction of another motorway near Ardrahan in County Galway, large swathes of wildflowers, including nine species of orchids, were threatened with destruction. But before the preliminary work of clearing the site had begun, they were removed by volunteers and planted elsewhere in safe, secure and suitable locations. Some were planted near Oranmore, also in County Galway, while others are now growing in the wildflower plots at the National Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin, County Dublin. Thanks Zoe. And finally, Dominic Price from the Species Recovery Trust is well known to podcast listeners as someone who is reintroducing the plant that inspired LSD back to Britain and trying to save a plant that most people don't even notice, called starved woodsedge. Now he's back this month with a rather more attractive plant called field cow wheat, but that doesn't mean that Dom isn't getting up to some rather eccentric behaviour. 
Dominic, what does the field cow wheat look like? It's got quite a fun name. Yeah, so the field cow wheat's a, a really kind of spectacular looking thing. I think uh, as an organisation, we tend to pride ourselves on working on very obscure, unattractive um, plants and insects. But actually this one, of all the things we work on, it's it's an absolute beauty. Um, it's a really unusual flower because it's got a sort of host of colours going on. It's got this sort of large pink throat and and petals, but it's also got bits of kind of yellow and bits of crimson streaked into it. So it's a very a very showy plant. In terms of its name, I suspect it was probably named for rather less prosaic reasons that it, it used to um it used to grow in amongst crops. Um, and in fact, there's records, particularly uh, the stuff written on the Isle of Wight, of it becoming a, a sort of major pest. Um, so you'd have whole fields of wheat turning this pink colour with the cow wheat. So I think cow wheat, I've, I'm not sure, but I think it's one of those similar terms. It's a bit like sort of dog rose. It's used as a slightly dismissive term to say, you know, it's, it's essentially not wheat. It's cow wheat. It's a contaminant um, which has got into these crops. So it sounds as though farmers have spent quite a lot of time and money trying to get rid of it and now you're trying to bring it back. Yeah, well, it's an it's an irony of um, all these plants which used to be crop contaminants, which are now some of our sort of rarest and most sought after plants. So things like pheasant's eye and Venus's looking glass and, you know, lots of the rarer uh, varieties of poppy. Um these things, yeah, they used to be on a on a massive scale and agriculture has got better at better at, you know, eliminating them. And I think, you know, we can't really blame farmers because if you are trying to grow one crop, you don't want it contaminated with other things. So, I mean, they were just doing naturally what they do to improve their crop. I think cow wheat, it's, it's never going to be a contaminant again um, because, you know, the seed cleaning technology and so forth is so good. But it's gone, it's an extraordinary story for cow wheat because it's gone, obviously, at one point i think about sort of 200 years ago it was very widespread and a bit of a pest um to now having really sort of barely four or five sites across the country and where are those sites so the sites are scattered quite loosely around around the south of england um there's one site on the isle of wight uh there's one site in wiltshire there's one site in hampshire um and there's one up in bedfordshire none of which are doing that well it must be said And what are you trying to do to change that? So uh, there's a few things we can do. Again, like most of the species, it's habitat management. So um, at the the Hampshire site at Portstown, um, which when we took it on a few years ago, the plants were quite sort of confined to a small patch and they were just surrounded by fairly dense scrub um, and ivy and so forth and we've just been kind of cutting that back each year and at that site it's worked really well we've now actually got the the population is back up to four numbers so we got I think sort of 1,300 plants last summer which is great um, and we're, we're trialling various forms of management the interesting thing about field cow wheat which complicates the thing with its management is it's what's called a hemiparasite so uh, it gets half of its nutrition the sort of standard way that plants do from photosynthesis but for the other half it actually invades the root systems of of plants around it and essentially nicks their nutrients so you have to be a bit careful when you clear a site because it may well be that um so particularly at Portsdown with the ivy we suspect it's parasitizing on the ivy so rather than sort of going guns blazing and rip all the ivy back to give enough bare ground to the plants we're just very very steadily reducing the amount of ivy um so there's 
there's enough for the plants to still predate but not so much that it swamps it so you know that that's made it quite interesting challenge for managing it and it's got a little friendship with the ants could they help you too yeah, so the seeds of cowie, and they're they're amazing things. They're absolutely huge, and you can sort of see how it probably was a bit of a, a contaminant because they're very similar size to a grain of wheat. I mean, they're really, really big. But on the end of each seed, they have these structures called aliasomes. And aliasomes are an amazing sort of evolutionary feat that they're essentially a little gift for an ant. They're a sort of a tiny glob of lipid and protein and the ants just go crazy for them so as soon as the seed drops an ant will find it and it will drag it off back to its nest and then it will chew the elizome off and use it to um feed the other ants in the colony um and it ignores the rest of the seed and it just leaves the seed where it is so it's an incredibly clever way for the plant to spread its seeds because these seeds are so big there's no other way they'd spread you know they simply drop out of the plant and and go straight onto the ground so that's the other thing we're trying to do at the sites we manage is kind of i mean it's a very hard thing to to manipulate but we're just trying to keep a bit of an eye on where we're finding ants the sort of habitat that ants like to be in i mean i think ants often you know they prefer it a bit sunny they don't like going into sort of colder shadier places so you know the scrub clearance helps with that and the really interesting thing is just seeing we're mapping the spread very closely because occasionally a clump of plants turns up you know quite a long way it might turn up about five meters away from where the other plants are at which point we're like okay we're pretty sure that's probably what the ants did um so yeah we're trying to sort of map map the ant nests and what the ants are up to it's one of those things in in, a, in an ideal world with an unlimited budget what would be absolutely brilliant is to put a kind of micro trail camera down where the seeds have fallen and actually catch you know this happening and an ant finding the seed and and taking it off and it would be so exciting to see that i've spent a long time you know on nice sort of warm sunny days just down on the ground waiting for this event to happen but frustratingly which which must be the lot of actually the wildlife cameraman i've never i've seen lots of ants and i've seen lots of seeds i'm yet to see an ant dragging off a seed so aside from ensuring that the ants are happy because they get their lovely seed is there a wider impact on the ecosystem of this plant dying out probably not i mean uh, to be fair all the stuff we work on is so rare because you know i get asked this for lots of the other plants they say you know what other animals does it support and i think the thing is they don't because whatever other animals they did support will have died out long ago if you were if you were an insect and you relied on field cowie and field cowie is only now at four sites it's just you know there's not enough to support anything else so i think most of these species have unfortunately rather kind of lost their place you know their very specific place in the general ecology of systems but of course you know there's this thing about general biodiversity that you know even if a species doesn't have a direct use they all have a use because they add to that kind of bulk of different you know plants that which are producing different pollen and nectar at different times of year so i'm absolutely sure they are insects which use the cow wheat i suspect if they're clever insects they probably have learned to use other plants as well because i think the ones yeah as i said which rely on it probably probably would have gone as well it's an amazing plant to see when it's in flower it's it's a, a, a glorious sight and i hope you know if we can make it slightly more common and more people 
you know we'll we'll get to see it because it's um it you know it's one of those plants you look at and I don't know a sort of involuntary grin forms across your face because it's just such an impressive plant it's up there with the orchids I say in terms of its showiness. Thanks Dom and just before I go a reminder that our challenge for this week is to find plants that caterpillars love eating. My wonderful Wildflower Hour co-leader Rebecca Wheeler will be posting details of the Caterpillar Challenge on wildflowerhour.co.uk. And if you're friends with Rebecca on Facebook or follow her on Twitter or Instagram, please do thank her for all the work she's doing running these weekly challenges. She is a complete star. And that's all for this week. Happy wildflower hunting!